everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. And today, we're recording this episode in Bearsbronn, Germany. And I'm here with specialized concept engineer, Chris Deluzio. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. Uh, I want to start by first giving listeners a little bit of context as to kind of what we're doing here. Um, to specialize, you've just announced uh, this, this new gravel bike, the Diverge STR, which includes a pretty novel... I guess would it be safe to call it a rear suspension setup, kind of. Sure, rear uh, rear compliance feature. Rear compliance feature. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, anyway, it includes this pretty novel rear compliance feature uh, that I would say builds on the future shock the future shock concept uh, that you first introduced up front several years ago, uh, and now provides similar benefit out back. Um, under the sort of like umbrella that I guess you're sort of just calling like suspend the rider, which is where the STR name comes from. Um, so I don't necessarily want to go super deep into the specifics of that particular bike since um, if you're listening to this right now, you can head over to sockingtips.com and get all the nitty gritty details on this. Um, but Chris, I did want to talk about some other aspects, sort of like bigger implications of what this technology and what some of these ideas might have on sort of the rest of the bicycle world. Um, but first, I want to get some background on you specifically because um, I feel like I've known you for a pretty long time at this point. Most of the people who are listening to, to this will have probably no idea who you are. <laughs> um, so how long have you been at Specialized now? Um, since 2001. Okay. Um, and if I remember correctly, uh, you were at Cannondale for a long time before then, like 17 years or something? Yep, you got it. Okay. That's so two long stints at just two companies. Yeah. Um, cool. Um, so what exactly do you do at Specialized Now? Or I guess what don't you do at Specialized Now? <laughs> <laughs> so right now I focus mainly on the road bike development, which includes the gravel um, sector. Um, and I focus a lot of my time on composite development, where there's manufacturing, a lot of it's prototyping. So we want to be able to get an idea um, and quickly figure out if it's going to work or not. And that um, a big part of that is composites. So we have, I could, I can't name the number of different ways we have of molding composites. It's, it's countless and it's growing. So that's a big part of what I do. And it's really fun. I like to create things and then build them and ride them. And I like to figure out different ways to do that because I get bored quickly too. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's what I do. And I also work on um, big ideas like this bike. Um, and then once that big idea is done, I am um, a consultant on getting it all the way through, both in... Um, all, the whole way through the process to make sure it stays on target and to help with any um, any sticking points that might come up. And there's always a lot. There's in this bike in particular, there are so many challenges and different development lanes that we had to take on the whole bike. Okay. Um, essentially, it sounds to me anyway that you've got an awful lot of latitude to explore a lot of different ideas. And you have an awful lot of tools to physically prototype and test up or test a lot of these things. Um, how many bicycle engineers that are in the industry right now do you think would want your job? Um, probably none of them. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't go that far. Um, I have a lot of pressure on me that I put on myself, which is, it's great until you don't have an idea for a while. And then the pressure builds and it builds and it builds. And then you're like, I wonder if I lost it. And then all of a sudden you're like, nope, I got it here. Well, let's do this. Okay. And, and it's really fun. And uh, yeah, I joke a lot about it. I do have a lot of freedom. Um, but with that does come um, pressure. Um, but it's, it's so much about just riding your bike and enjoying it and figuring out what you don't like about it and talking to riders and figuring out what they don't like about it. And they might not even know. So you're listening between what they're saying and then kind of getting little clues. You might talk to a rider and get a clue and then change the way you ask the question to the next rider. And then you get on a, a scent of a problem. And then once you figure out what the problem is, then the fun starts to try and figure out a solution to the problem. Got it. Okay. So before Specialized, you were at Cannondale. What did you do there? A similar, um, similar job but it included mountain bikes. Okay. So first, when I first started there, I had a knack that we used to help up the first aluminum production facility for bikes ever. So I helped create that at Cannondale in Pennsylvania. So I learned um, under real pressure um, and had a group of really fabulous people to work with. And they gave me um, a lot of responsibility at a very young age to get it done. So there was a long period of figuring that out. And that led to um, designing aluminum bikes and figuring out how to use aluminum the best. And, you know, there was the, the, um, the fatty, you know, the suspension system. I did not come up with that, but I, was, I helped get that going. Um, there were so many different and fun projects and it turned more into more further down the road advanced projects and things like that started to be bigger ideas instead of little little things to help um yeah that's that's kind of how it got bigger and bigger and bigger so my understanding correctly that you were the one you're the guy who came up with the lefty yes yeah so how did that come about it's one of those things like i got an idea i'll let you know and uh two days later I wrote it, and then I remember it clear as day. The hardest part was making the hub because I, in an afternoon, I had sketched it out, figured it out, and was making it, and I tested it on a race course that weekend undercover. It was really cool. How do you do a, how do you do a single-sided fork undercover? Like, how is someone not going to well, notice that? Well, kind of like pull it out of the bike, do a lap. This is the day before a local mountain bike race, and do a lap, throw it back in the car, and like, wow, yeah, that thing works. Okay, we're going to do it. Got it. Yeah. Man. Okay. Wild. Uh, but another big project that you had at Candell, uh, you had a huge hand in their motorsports division, right? In the motorcycle development, yeah. Okay, so I guess just to recap for people listening, um, a lot of people, well, I think a lot of people do know, but a lot of people also don't know that Cannondale, way back in the day, uh, had a pretty ambitious project of developing motorcycles and quads. Um, and I guess a big part of that was bringing their aluminum frame technology to motorsports. Um, but you were also developing your own engine, right? Yes. So It was hard. <laughs> so, I mean... Uh, I mean, my guess is that you didn't come into this role by happenstance because 
you really already at that point had had a pretty intimate background with road motorcycles, right? Yes. So what was that? Um, I don't remember the dates, and that's before most people were born. So a long time ago, (laughs) (laughs) um, I raced motorcycles, road race motorcycles in the U.S., and I started as an amateur in my second year. I turned professional um, with my brother, Gary. Um, and we toured the country. And in my third year, I basically had a team and hired mechanics and had, uh, I think it was racing two classes. Um, and then maybe my fourth year, I was the rider. Um, so I was hired to ride the motorcycles. So there was a pretty quick jump to doing national level racing pretty successfully. I think I won seven nationals and, you know, competed at U.S. Grand Prix at Laguna Seca. Yeah, it was really fun, super dangerous. I don't advise it to anyone. (laughs) Um, It's, (laughs) yeah, it's, um, it really taught me about two-wheeled vehicle dynamics and how important it is to get the setup right because you can always think oh i just need to try harder that's never the answer you'll end up on the ground trying harder doesn't make you go faster it's always the setup Interesting. it's always the setup and and that is the that is the engineering backbone right that's you you have to get the technology right and the setup right to make a step forward and that that means Trusting what you're doing, trusting the data you're collecting, really trust it so that you can take the next step with confidence. Interesting. So how much of that background would you say has played into your career in the bicycle industry? I have a lot of confidence in two-wheeled vehicle dynamics and how I talk to people about how we ride bikes. Um, And I do understand that language is the only way we can do it. But I also understand that riding with people is very powerful. Watching someone ride can um, do more than talking to someone about it because we're all very talented cyclists. Most of us don't know how we ride. We don't know what's happening under us because we're busy riding our bikes. But you can observe what's happening. And you can especially observe it when you look at different size riders ride or different, you know, just cornering techniques and and how people shift on their bikes and things like that. And that's a great example of how Rider First came up. It's from riding with people. I ride behind people a lot for various reasons. I don't like to be on the front all the time. <laughs> so yeah, you can, those dynamics and watching the wheels on the ground and how much the rider is moving around it, and it varies by size. And that's where Rider First came from. So can you give me an example of, of sort of what you're looking at and what you're analyzing? Like what, when you see a particular rider doing something or how, how they're cornering or something like that, what sort of information are you able to glean from that? And how do you translate that into product or setup? I can't tell you that. Okay. Because it's, it's just, um, and it's similar with product development. Um, it's all just inputs and you're just absorbing what's happening. And until you see something that's out of the ordinary that's like, wait, I never saw that before. What happened? And you look for it again, and maybe you see a trend, and you see it again and again, and you're like, oh, now I understand what it is. Let's explore this. And I don't know what this is, 
and I never will because I just, and that's the way we work, right? We need to absorb to a point of saturation and then, then the ideas start coming from those. Got it. Okay. Hmm. All right. Well, um, one of the reasons why I'm so interested in your, in your motorcycle racing background, um, and it is related to kind of what we're doing here, the, this bike you just introduced, um, Okay, I said I wasn't going to go into details on this bike, but I guess I lied. So um, I'm going to go into a little detail about the bike. So um, on the current generation Diverge, so you've had, let's see, what year did you introduce the front Future Shock now? 2017. And that was on the Roubaix, right? It was on the Roubaix. Okay. Yep. Um, and essentially it was sort of this, got it. All right. I should let you explain this. What's what do you what would you say is the best way to explain physically what the future shock is up front on the Roubaix and the Diverge? The best way to explain it is a needle roller bearing assembly that's inside the steer tube, very lightly sprung to support the rider's arm weight. It's not uh, it's not a suspension feature that you you know expect to put all your weight into and absorb a big bump. It's there to um, change the bump size that you're gonna ride around or ride into. And it does a fantastic job of that. When you ride the Future Shock, the, the size of the bump, like I just said, it just changes in your mind. You know, we all have these bumps. You're like, oh, that's a little too big. And we're all thinking, I better go around that one. The bump size just triples or, you know, quadruples with this feature. Hmm, okay. So now with this rear setup, essentially what you are essentially what you're going after is that same sort of bump absorption or I guess change in bump size benefit, but out back now. Yes, exactly. Um and correct me if I'm wrong, but conceptually in my head, after riding it for the last couple of days and kind of like digging through it and talking with you and, and uh kind of getting a better understanding of what it is, I mean essentially what it is, it's it's sort of like a extra, extra, extra long seat post with a damper to control the movement. Very simply put, that's correct. Okay. All right. Cool. All right. Um, so in terms of suspension and bicycles, I feel like for sure, suspension at both ends is obviously very much accepted on the, in the mountain bike world for obvious reasons. Um, I feel like it is slowly being more widely used in gravel in various incarnations, whether it be built into the frame or suspension seat posts or even just, you know, more flexible seat posts or suspension stems, that sort of thing. Um, and we see it a little bit, like just a little bit on the road, I guess partially with this Roubaix, but also more commonly referred to just sort of as frame compliance, sort of like engineered flex in the frame and then um, people running higher volume tires at lower pressure, that sort of thing. Um, what I'm wondering, though, is, granted, motorcycles and bicycles are, are very different vehicles in a lot of ways, but I personally have always been in the, of the opinion that, um, especially when going through like a, a very technical descent, I generally have felt more comfortable, I feel like, on bikes often that are like a little bit softer. Because um, for me, at least anyway, I'm not a super heavy rider. I'm like 71 kilos or whatever. Um, and to me, it's always seemed like if the bike is a little bit softer, the bike feels like a little more planted to me. It feels, it, it feels to me like I have a little bit more traction. I can kind of push it harder in the corner, that sort of thing. Um, would there be a benefit to some sort of proper suspension on a road bike for anything other than perfect pavement? 
Like, why don't we have suspension on road bikes more now? That's a good question. Um, it, it does have to do with the bump size. Um, and at a certain bump size, your tire won't do the job. Um, but consider, let's see, how do we say this best? Consider the rider is sitting on a spring and, and their springs in series. And when we talk about a, a load coming just vertically, let's take all the other um, directions of forces out of it. Just vertically, the bump starts at the tire. So that's why people use tires for suspension. But it's kind of a Band-Aid, right? You use a bigger tire, well, now you're generally slowing down because you run a lower pressure. You're hurting your aerodynamics a lot of the time. And keep in mind, a lot of this is debatable and situation-dependent. So this is a general statement. And then so the, the, the bump hits the tire, you know, hopefully it doesn't hit the rim. And then it moves from the wheel into the fork, which don't move, essentially. Um, and then and in the back, it, hits, it goes through the wheel and into the frame and then through the seat post. And every bike with a seat post has compliance. And we all know that in the old time aero bikes were horrible, right? So stiff. So that's the extreme of no compliance, and we're willing to put up with that. And there's some creative solutions to get some compliance, but then you look at, you know, like our Terra post on the Diverge is an extremely compliant seat post to kind of get as much as you can. And so that, those are kind of the extremes of it. Um, so you talk about bump size in relation to suspension on road bikes. What, what is considered normal, I guess, for, for road riding? There's no metric for normal, because it, so it all depends on, on what your measurement method is. Is it, how, uh, is it just comments, or is it, you know, physical data? And when you start, there's so many variables, it's hard to talk about compliance. But what we do know, when we have graduated from, that we were trying to accomplish a long time ago was vibration. That's pretty much in no one's language anymore. So we've graduated away from vibration and call it actual compliance and use whole millimeters instead of frequency ranges, right? And that's, that's actually a big step for road bikes. Um, and of course, that's back when we were riding really small tires at really high pressures. And that's it's kind of the tire switch over to the bigger tires and the wider rims. That's when you start to realize, wait, I don't need this harsh ride. What else can we do? You know, when you start to run a 28 and then a 32, and then you're like, oh, you can drop the pressure, and then you start to go slower. You're like, wait, I want my compliance back. I need to go back down a tire size and add compliance back into my frame. And so that's kind of where we're switching back and going, you know, that's where the Roubaix and the dropped seat post clamp come in. Um, and that worked very good with the extra compliance we got um, with the future shock. But is there a place for stuff like that on a, like a proper road racing bike? Like it, like looking at like the Trek Madone, for example. I mean, that, I feel like that's an example of an aero road bike where if it didn't have some sort of rear compliance feature, that bike would probably ride pretty terribly looking at the, the, the cross-section depths and stuff like that. Um, so that is something that Trek obviously developed to kind of give you both, right? Yes. Some sort of like, you know, a very aero bike and also not have it ride terribly. Um, but 
looking at other other road bikes, like let's say that the, the your Athos, for example, um, like I think that's an example of a bike that really rides well, and a lot of people have uh, have really received really well because it's obviously not aero, um, but it does ride well, especially if you run bigger tires on it. Like it provides sort of like the sensation, the sensation that a lot of people are looking for, and maybe arguably that sort of sensation that I was discussing earlier, where if you're on like a slightly more compliant bike, where I feel like I can corner better. Um, but looking especially now at at a variety of of sort of quality of paved surfaces that are out there, I, I would say that there are very, very few people in the world who would say that the quality of their paved roads is better now than it was 10 years ago. Unless you live around here in Germany. Or Switzerland. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> So it seems like as as paved surfaces are getting worse, and we're seeing this in even in Grand Tours and stuff too. I mean, granted, a lot of those roads oftentimes are you know resurfaced before a stage and that sort of thing. Um, but granted, that's a tiny percentage of the people riding these bikes, road, road bikes in general. So the vast majority of people who are riding road bikes are just amateurs going out for a ride, and they're probably riding on roads that are pretty awful. Um, is Granted, you have this future shock on the Roubaix, fine. But what if someone wants something like a Tarmac or an Athos or something like that and wants kind of the compliance, kind of wants more compliance than is offered on either of those bikes? Like, is there is there a place for something like that front and or rear that would make sense? Like, are we, are, are we eventually getting to a place where something like that makes sense for the everyday rider? Um... I, yes, I think that our roads are getting very bad. I live on a road that's very bad. Um, and I ride my Roubaix. I, I test other bikes that we make. And as soon as my time's up, I'm back on my Roubaix. Um, I'm doing some things. Our team's doing some things that um, will satisfy future needs. Um, and compliance is part of that. Um, but will the tarmac rider want compliance in a feature mm, i doubt it because we want the bare bones experience we want a race bike right um it's um it's probably not something that you would take any kind of negative hit for okay um but looking you know, we were talking earlier about running bigger tires and lower pressures and that sort of thing and you were saying you were talking about how you know some of that is is debatable um I mean, I would almost say like it's it's almost kind of just more conditional. Um, like it seems like d- certainly depending on the quality of the surface and everything, like you you can go faster on a tire at lower pressure, but it also kind of requires a more a, a more supple tire and like something with less hysteresis, that sort of thing. Um, and there was an awful lot of resistance to that sort of that sort of change in tire pressures, certainly in in the World Tour ranks. Um, traditional racers who are still running, you know, 110, 120 psi, whatever. Like it felt fast somehow, um, whereas the actual data would show that they're maybe faster at 70. Um, right. So you know, you talk about how a traditional tarmac buyer or rider is maybe kind of looking for more of this bare bones experience. Why, why can't we have that sort of similar philosophy shift in the ride quality of a frame? instead of just looking at the tires and tire pressure and that sort of thing. Like, well, well, we, basically, we, why would a softer frame be bad? A softer frame vertically is not bad, 
But what's very difficult is have a softer frame vertically compliant for everyone. When you have a frame that, and you say you want compliance and it needs to satisfy every rider that's gonna ride that frame, every rider being every rider size and weight, um, and you have to pass the test. There's a compliance number that we go for that meets all those needs. When you have a compliance number, um, a vertical compliance number that gets um, high enough, if that makes sense, um, enough travel, put it that way, that I like it, bigger riders hate it. And then when we satisfy the bigger riders, it doesn't do anything for me. So to get that compliance for everyone, you can't do in a frame solution. Well, but, but that's for something that where we're talking about engineering compliance in the traditional sense into, I guess, particularly into a composite frame where you're trying to incorporate a certain amount of flex in one plane, but not in the other, right? Correct, yes. I um, know what you mean. But what, about, but what about putting in some sort of physical compliance or suspension mechanism into that frame so that you can further separate those two attributes? Yes. Um, the best way that we can do that is like the Roubaix dropped clamp. Um, so you still have your double diamond stiffness. You keep your top tube at the height to get that stiffness and you drop the clamp inside. You get more seat post flex out of it. Um, and when you just add a feature, you're adding a weight. And then there's the, that's that cost that you have to pay. And who wants that, you know, because features add, add weight and it's very difficult to take it out of somewhere else. And then you, it's, it's hard to satisfy, um, they're at odds with satisfying that compliance thing. And typically that's the last, it, it seems like that's the last thing people care about in a race bike. Although I think it's crazy. I would sacrifice a little weight for a little more speed, which you get with more compliance. Well, that's the thing I'm going for here. Well, that's one of the things I'm wondering about here because again, looking back through, through recent and maybe not so recent years, like when bikes got super aero, one of the, one of the biggest complaints were that they were heavier. And so you had all these pro riders who wouldn't ride them because they were, I don't know what, two, 300 grams heavier, if that. And yet there was all this, all this information showing that they would be faster if they were riding it. And eventually they, they, they adopted those. Um, so like coming back to this, to this diverge STR that you have, um, you already have the added weight of that future shock up front, which you, in a large sense, already have to justify to a rider who is very weight conscious. Mm -hmm. um, and now you're adding the second feature out back, which I think we said adds something, what, like 400 grams or something as compared to a, a non-STR diverge of like similar composite construction, that sort of thing. Um, so granted, that's a very different usage case, a different, different, different scenario. But still, you are already presenting the case that this bike with this much added weight is better Offers well offers a better experience. Presumably, could potentially be faster, quote unquote, depending on what the situation is. Um, so you're very much making the case that that added weight 
is better than not having that weight and not having that feature. Yes. Um, For the riding situation. Right. Yes. Right. So, okay, granted, the Roubaix is a bike that was designed, I mean, originally it was supposed to be like, you know, I don't even know if I'd say originally, but it was sort of designed to be like a cobbles bike. I remember when it was first introduced, it was a big deal that it came with 700 by 25s instead right. of 23s. Like, <laughs> so it, it was a very big deal. Um, but again, looking at, looking at road bikes specifically, yes, a lot of people want that bare bones, like super racer, like just pinner speed sort of thing. Um, but again, like I, I always look at things in like car analogies a, a lot of times, like it, it, it's sort of the equivalent of someone buying a track car to just use every day. Like they're kind of fun, but the usage case is so limited. Um, it, I, I don't know if you remember this bike, you know, decades ago, uh, I think it might've been Doug Bradbury who was, who had this concept road bike that incorporated a suspension fork. And this, I think this would have been in like, maybe like early 90s, maybe even like late 80s. And of course, it never caught on. This was, dear God, this was like 35 years ago or something. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, but I remember even thinking back then, like that sort of thing just seemed to make sense. Uh, and now we have all these little, like all these add-on solutions, like, you know, various suspension seat posts and stems and that sort of thing. And I've played around with a bunch of, bunch of that stuff. And, and I agree, I, it, it doesn't make sense all the time. Um, but even just for general road riding, if the roads are crap, like they are in an awful lot of places, it does seem like a lot of those things still make sense. Like I, I still run, I mean, my, my all-road bike, I have a Allied Alpha all-road that I own. And I run a suspension stem on that most of the time. And I like that bike better with that stem on there than I do without. And I ride that bike mostly on paved surfaces, some, some unpaved also, but it's mostly paved. Um, and I know that stem's heavier, but I also choose to run it because to me, I feel like I have a better experience on it. It is more comfortable, sure. But like I said earlier, I also feel like I have better cornering traction up front. Like I feel I can go faster, particularly downhill than going through corners and just like drive the front end. Um, is something like that, looking at it from an engineering pure numbers sort of standpoint, are there situations even in just pure road riding where something like that would make sense to someone? Like would something like that make someone go or help someone go faster to counteract that higher weight? Yes, it, it does. But it does depend on, on the whole situation, who the rider is, what, what the key elements of riding they, you know, of riding that they're gravitating towards. Cause some people do like that hard, rough ride. Cause they're going to do like, especially do the lunch ride. They don't need any suspension. Right. It's over in 45 minutes and right. they're very happy right. with what they have. Right. They need an oxygen tank. Yeah. <laughs> so it is, it is very um, important to put the customer on the bike and figure out their needs. Um, but I think what you're talking around is similar to the same conversation that we're having about tires. Mm -hmm. How, oh, it was funny when they went to 25s and now we're, it's crazy to ride anything smaller than a 28 and even that small. Compliance is headed that same direction. So it just takes a little bit of momentum to okay. build. Um, and this STR is a great example of that. You don't have an STR until you try all the other solutions and you throw them all out to come up with the one you like. 
and the one that will satisfy everyone and everyone's different weights and things like that. So it's a very elegant solution. Um, and we don't have that solution that's weight free in a tarmac that, that we have right now. Is that something that you'd ever be working on? <laughs> Some, like some sort of like increased compliance feature in something like a tarmac, because like you were talking about the seat post, I mean that is definitely like a prime, the the primary source of frame based compliance out back. Yeah. But you don't have that sort of easy solution up front necessarily. Um, like, I mean, I like again, like you know, Trek tried with the that front ISO speed thing, they tried to use the the, the steer tube, but that's very limited length. There's just only so much you can do. Yeah. Um, so what? Can you like what are the limitations of compliance up front without putting something in? You're basically limited. Um, if you try to tried to add suspension in the direction of travel, um, like a fork, like a mountain bike fork, that's so heavy for so little um, reward. Right, it's never worth it. Right, because we did that. Right, right. It's too much for too little is a great way to say it. Right. And I guess the, the sad reality is that when it comes to telescoping suspension elements, unfortunately, you just don't save that much weight by re just, re just by reducing the travel because you still have so many of the exactly. same elements there. Yeah. And all the downsides is directional stability is horrible. It, they never work over small bumps with high pressure tire. Mm -hmm. Forget about it. It's locked all the time until you hit something significant. Right. Basically, they suck. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, and then... Uh, a fork, no matter the material, is just harsh. It has to be. It's doing all the work, right? It's doing the work of a to keep you up and keep you safe. <laughs> it can't break. <laughs> it can't break. Yeah, and the testing is crazy. Um, and so to add compliance um, <clears throat> is very difficult. Trek did do a very. They made a good attempt at trying it. Um, and we made our attempt and we think it's the best. It does add weight. It does add some packaging. Um, um, we can't put the cables inside the, steer, inside the steer tube like we'd like to. You know, there's I'm, some I'm, compromises. I'm, I'm okay with that, Chris. Yeah. Good. Perfectly okay with that part. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great solution and it satisfies everyone. Um, it does come on a lot of our bikes, but not the Tarmac, not the Crux, right? Which is the Crux is a great example of a bike that could use more compliance, but for that racer, that you gotta throw that thing on your shoulder, you want the snap, you want the, and yeah, it's just like, let's get this done and get it over, that kind of thing. That rider doesn't even want water bottle bosses. True. Right, they're not gonna ride with the Future Shock. So um, we understand that, and we, we make a bike for that rider. Um, I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball a little bit and looking at the trends that we've been seeing over the last 10, 20 years, like we were talking about with compliance on road bikes, that sort of thing. It does seem like we are going to get to a point, if we haven't already, where you just can't put in any more compliance, particularly up front in one of those bare bones road bikes. Do you think that that trend will continue where people will want more compliance up front from a road bike? Or are they going to want something else, like you know, the idea of more aerodynamics or whatever? Good question. Um, and the answer is, we, as far as more compliance, we are very happy with the Future Shock and have developments that go along with that that are you know suspend the rider because um, we believe in that because we we do like the structure that in the frame and fork that we have, and it's. 
been around so long, it's hard to leapfrog past. Um, so the future shock we really like, and we're going to stick with until we come up with something that's better. And if someone else does that, we may have to drop what we're doing and do what they're doing, right? But until then, all we can do is, is um, work on the problem. And it comes back to what is the problem and can we solve it? Okay. And I guess also coming back to that same issue, there maybe isn't a need to really address that problem until it really does seem like it's a legitimate problem for enough people, right? Um, I guess you could say it that way, but we don't look at it that way. I, because it's not the number of people you're going to satisfy. Because if one person has the problem, everyone has the problem. They just don't know it. Mm, that's an interesting way to look at it. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Well, I, for for people listening, I, I definitely did not want to raise this conversation with you know some sort of agenda or anything. I don't have... I'm not trying to necessarily push suspension elements on bare bones road bikes and that sort of thing, but it is something that I'm really curious about. And I'm really wondering where this whole thing is going to go over the next five, 10, God, 15, 20 years if I'm around that, that much longer. Um, and I am certainly really curious to see where this all goes because it does seem like we are largely at that upper limit of how much compliance you can build into that front end. Um, and I, I dare say the the road riding audience that that consumer base is probably not getting younger. Uh, certainly, as bikes have gotten more expensive, um, and I'm really wondering where things are going to go over that next time period. So, I guess we'll just wait and see. We'll just, we'll see what comes off your desk, Chris. <laughs> cool. Well, Chris, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate you letting me kind of dig into your brain a little bit. I know you're pretty busy you've got a lot going on in there so there's a lot of a lot of stuff to a lot of stuff to sift through in there yeah you're welcome anytime cool thanks all right well thanks as always for listening to the show if you have any questions go ahead and leave them in the comment section below in the written article on cyclingtips.com if you haven't already done so please go ahead and subscribe to our channel here and go ahead and, and leave a, a rating and review on itunes please uh, it really does help us out and in the meantime we'll go ahead and see you next week thanks for listening to nerd alert 